Well, good morning, Moberly. Wow, these are exciting times, right? Yes. Uh, I tell you, I have gotten to know Andrew Bear over the last few weeks. And we've talked, and my wife has talked to Amy a number of times. And I just want to say to you guys, you are blessed to have them coming to your church because he is outstanding, outstanding pastor. But also they're blessed to be able to come to Moberly because Moberly is a great church and I think it's a great match. So this is an exciting week. Well, before we get into the message, let's play Jeopardy, okay? Got your buzzers ready? All right, here we go. Category is New Testament. And the answer for 400 is beside the resurrection, the only miracle of Jesus Recorded in all four gospel accounts. Feeding 5,000. I'm sorry you didn't put it in the form of a question. (laughs) But no, you're right. You're right. Of all the miracles of Jesus, beside the resurrection... The feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. So it must be of importance, the message behind the miracle, because it's listed in all of them. So that's interesting. So congratulations. Pick up your $400 as you exit the lobby, okay? So I don't know about you. I'm not real crazy about all-you-can-eat buffets anymore. I mean, I used to when I was younger, but I mean, I don't eat that much anymore. Maybe you still like all-you-can-eat buffets. Uh, By the way, according to Zagat Dining Guide, the most fabulous buffet in America is at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. If you take the chef's table option, you get unlimited Kobe beef, unlimited tenderloin, unlimited lobster, snow crab, 168 items, and it'll only only cost you $132 per person. Or you can go to Golden Corral (laughs) for $12. So this miracle, I call it, to open your Bibles, Mark 6.30, the miracle of the minnows and the muffins. And we're going to read about it here in Mark 6, verse 30. You're welcome to stand with me, if able, as we read the Word of God. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest a while. I mean, they're all exhausted. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So remember that, they're hungry. So they went away into the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot all the the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Did you just hear that a few minutes ago? Just coincidence, right? Coincidence is not in God's vocabulary. Then he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted, and it is already late. Send them away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something to eat. Jesus said, hey, no, you give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Now, John's account tells us that it was Andrew 
that brought the little boy with the lunch to Jesus. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups of green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. I like the organizational skill of Jesus. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are still performing the miracle of multiplication in the lives and churches that you've founded and that you have saved. So teach us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Now, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but really it should be called the feeding of the multitude because there were 5,000 men, and of course there were children and uh, wives and women there, so no doubt it was probably about the feeding of the 15,000. Now, here's the geographical setting. Jesus and the disciples were probably down about midway on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, and they wanted to get away from the crowd, so they got on a boat and sailed out into the Sea of Galilee around to the north, probably about three miles. But, you know, even to this day, when you're on shore, you can see all the boats on the, on the lake. So this crowd of 15,000 people, just imagine them just following along the shore because the boat was only going as fast as the wind was blowing. And so they followed around three miles to probably somewhere just a little north of Capernaum because we, we believe we know exactly where he fed the multitude. And then when Jesus gets there, there's a crowd already waiting for him. So there are some great things we can learn about this. Uh, but one thing I can use as an example, I, I've warned you before about the dangers of liberal theology, about how liberal theology uh, has really destroyed many seminaries and divinity schools, but not Southern Baptists. We're very conservative. But in the 1970s, I was attending Southern Seminary when there were still a couple of liberal professors there. And I want to tell you that one of my professors, he's talking about this miracle. And he said, there was no miracle. He said, really, you know what happened? All the people had food hidden in their robes. And when this boy showed the example of generosity to Jesus, everybody then pulled out their food and ate it. So there was no supernatural miracle. You know, when he said that, I'm in class thinking, you know, all these poor widow women in South Alabama that are tithing their Social Security check to pay your salary? Man, if they could get to you, they would beat you to death with their purses. You know, the only thing wrong with his explanation is, how are you going to have 12 basketfuls of leftovers? What, everybody bring their Yeti out there, their cooler? No, it, it, this was an absolute supernatural miracle of God. Jesus took you know, five little biscuits and two little fish and fed thousands of people. Now, I've said this before. There is a miracle in every parable, and there's a parable in every miracle. In other words, this miracle has a message for us beyond just the miracle itself. So I want us to learn three life-changing truths. Here's life-changing truth number one. There isn't a problem too big for God to solve. Now, you can just write it down and take it to the bank. You'll, you'll never encounter a problem that is too big for God to solve. So what was their problem late in the day? Deserted, isolated, thousands of hungry people. And, and there are all kinds of problems we face. So there was at least two problems that afternoon. 
Number one was a lack of food. They were out there, isolated, no food. Now, I don't know how that applies to us because looking around this crowd, it doesn't like too many of us are missing a lot of meals. We don't have a lack of food. But hey, you, you may have a shortage in other areas of your life. Uh, maybe a shortage of financial resources, maybe a shortage of joy, of peace, of purpose in your life. And you know, God doesn't want you to have a shortage in any area. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He wants you to li- live a life that is uh, where your shortage is replaced with surplus. All right, the second problem was this, a lack of faith. And this is a much bigger problem, a lack of faith. Uh, they didn't have the faith to believe Jesus could do something about this. So Peter Lord was a great pastor. He passed away last year in the 90s. And back in the days of cassette tapes, I used to listen to Peter Lord tapes and Jack Taylor tapes and Ron Dunn tapes. They were some of my favorites. And Peter Lord used to say that whenever there's a problem, Christians approach it with one of three approaches. He said some approach a problem as feelers. This isn't on the outline. You can just add this to the margin. As feelers, they feel like this is what they ought to do. He said another group approaches it as figurers. You know, they kind of calculate a solution to the problem. And then, hallelujah, praise God, some people approach it as faithers with faith. Let me give you an example. You know, some people say, I just feel like this is what I ought to do. I got a gut feeling. And, you know, the disciples said, here's the solution. Send everybody into the villages and let them buy food. I, the disciples said, we feel like that's the solution to this problem. And, you know, I want to warn you, don't depend on your feelings. Your emotions are the shallowest part of your soul. And so if you're one who always says, I just kind of felt like it was the right thing to do, that, that's not a good word, uh, not a good testimony. I mean, we need to trust God. But then there are figurers. They, they calculate the answer to the problem. John tells us it was Philip who calculated the cost of the food. So here's what happened. You know, Philip pulls out his eye abacus. 15,000 people, $3 a meal, person, $45,000. So the Lord is going to cost $45,000 to feed them. Now, 200 denarii, a denarius is what one man would make working one day. So multiply what you make by 200 days. So that was the cost it was going to take. He calculated the answer. Uh, And, you know, through the years as I've served the Lord, and I've been in hundreds of meetings in the church, and when we're talking about spending the Lord's money, there always are some people that were few in Tyler, not many, thank God, who every time we were talking about spending the Lord's money, their first question was, how much is it going to cost? Can we afford it? That's never the first question to ask. The first question to ask is, is it God's will? Because Jehovah Jireh, where God guides, God provides whatever you need. Let me give you an example of a calculation. In the late 90s, we were getting ready to raise $20 million in Tyler to build our 3,600-seat worship center. We thought it was going to be $20 million. At that time, Green Acres had 10,000 members. I got a letter from one of the guys in the church. He was not really that involved, but he said, I've, I've got the solution for raising the $20 million. You have 10,000 members. Just let each member give $2,000, and you've got your $20 million raised. So I wrote him a nice letter back and said, thank you for your interest in our fundraising, but that plan won't work. First of all, of the 10,000 members, you know, half of them don't come or don't give. The FBI couldn't find them. 
Secondly, a lot of those members that do come are children and students. They can't give $2,000. Plus, we've got some people on fixed income. It would be a stretch for them to give $2,000. And I said, really, on the other hand, we've got lots of wealthy members. They'll drop $2,000 on a weekend at a cowboy game because some of them had skyboxes. So I just said, you know what? It's not equal amounts. It's equal sacrifice. And then I started to write in the letter, but I'll be by this week to pick up your $2,000 check. <laughs> I didn't say that. Are you a feeler? Are you a figurer? God, give us more faithers, faithers to follow up on the worship center in Tyler. It didn't cost $20 million. It cost $28 million. But the day we moved in, in April 2001, it was totally paid for, and we'd even earned interest on some of the money that people had given. Uh, and you know what I've discovered about Moberly? That this is a church full of faithers. Now, you may not know this, but this spring we did a, had a consultant come in and study some things about the church. Uh, Tom Rainier, who's a former president of Lifeway, has a company called Church Answers, and they've studied hundreds of churches. So he has some good things to suggest about the church. But one thing he pointed out that was a surprise to me and some of our leaders, he said, of all the churches we've ever studied, Moberly has the highest per capita giving level of any church we've ever studied. In other words, this is a generous church full of faithers. And I just want to say to you that we are, you, we are in great position to receive and welcome a new pastor because the church is debt-free and the church has a really healthy surplus right now on gifts compared to expenses. I told the finance committee several weeks ago, I said, get ready for a new pastor to come in and spend that. Because <laughs> the church isn't a bank. You know, we're, we're, we're to invest that money in the Lord's work. I like people that have faith. I heard a story one time of a lady who was assisted living, and she was still young and, and vigorous. And uh, a new guy showed up there, a guy that, whose wife had died about a year before. And she saw him sitting alone in the dining room. She went over and said, hey, you mind if I sit down and talk to you? He said, sure, I like some company. So they sat there and had a delightful conversation. And after a while, she said, would you excuse me for just staring at you? But you remind me of my third husband. <laughs> he said, how many times have you been married? She said, twice. <laughs> now, that's what I call faith. <laughs> All right, here's life-changing truth number two. There isn't a person too young for God to use. Now, as I said, John tells us that it was Andrew that brought this little boy to Jesus. I've always liked the name Andrew, don't you? You know what the word Andrew, name Andrew means in the Greek language? It means strong and manly. So if any of you are Andrews here today, it means strong and manly. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. It was Andrew that brought his brother Simon Peter to meet Jesus. When these Greeks came in Jerusalem and said, sir, we would see Jesus, it was Andrew that took them to see Jesus. And here it's Andrew who brings this little boy. You know what? Uh, some people say, God can't use me. I'm too young or I'm too unqualified. But you know what? God can use anybody, no matter your age or no matter your experience, because here's a fact. God delights to use people who seem to be unqualified. Can I say it again? God delights to use people who seem to be unqualified. Because God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And think about all the young people that God used in the Bible. God started communicating with Samuel 
when he was just a child. And then God used this teenage shepherd boy, little David, to kill a giant that could dunk a basketball flat-footed. And there's a Carmen song that says he, he, with faith in God, he flung that stone, and much to their surprise, he killed that monster with a rock that nailed him between the eyes. Then he decapitated his fallen foe to make sure that he was dead and showed everyone there he was someone who really knew how to get ahead. <laughs> God used a teenage girl in Nazareth to be the mother of the Messiah. And God used that tiny little baby in the manger to become the savior of mankind. God delights to use people who seem to be unqualified. So you're never too young and you're never too old for God to use you. Maybe you've never heard of Grady Wilson, but when he was a 15-year-old teenager, he invited his best friend, who was not a Christian, to go to a crusade in North Carolina. That was 1934, and his friend's name was Billy Graham. And he was saved that night because a 15-year-old friend invited him to a crusade. Here's the third life-changing truth. There isn't a gift too small for God to transform. I mean, five little loaves and two little fish. I want to read verses 40 through 44 again, if you still have your Bible open, and look at some key words. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, here's the next word, blessed, here's the next one, and broke the leaves. He kept on giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, Everyone ate and was satisfied. All you can eat buffet. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, for years, I kind of pictured, you know, fluffy loaves of bread uh, and maybe tilapia or something like that. But really, the language is these were barley uh, loaves, which means the cheapest kind of grain. So these were probably just little muffins and maybe like sardines to just kind of, you know, smear on the biscuits to give them a little fishy taste. But this was just such a meager gift, but yet the little boy was happy to do it. Andrew brought him to Jesus, and, and the, the little lad, who's unknown, unnamed, but not forgotten, said, here, Lord, you can have it all. I mean, he didn't negotiate. He didn't say, oh, I, I'll give you one loaf and one fish. You, you can have it all. So it's now a time to sort of make a real personal application to this. Because embedded in this process that Jesus went through to multiply the food, there is a cycle of surplus that I believe anyone can apply to your life. See, God is the God of the surplus. David didn't say, my cup is full. He said, my cup runs over. So here are the four steps to this cycle of surplus. Number one. Jesus takes what we give him. He takes what we give him. The little boy said, here, Lord, it's not much, but I give it to you. Now, what did he do? He transferred ownership of his lunch to Jesus. If you want to get in on God's cycle of surplus, you must transfer ownership of all that you have and all that you are to Jesus. Now, you know, my wife and I have always dedicated every house we've ever lived in to God. In 1980, we built our first house in Alabama using sweat equity, and we're living now in the fifth house, 
And every one of them, we've had a ceremony when we moved in in which we said, God, this is your house. Doesn't belong to the mortgage company. Doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you to use for your glory as you will. And, you know, as a pastor in Tyler, I was blessed many times to be invited into the new homes of some of our members, and we would have a dedication ceremony for their new house. I love doing that because it showed that our people had some spiritual values. And you ought to invite your new pastor in to dedicate your home or your business when, when you start something new. And, you know, I've also dedicated every car I've ever driven to God. I said, God, this is your car. Uh, use it as you will. Take me to perform ministry. Take me to preach the word. You know, it says in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good tidings of peace. There's nothing beautiful about my feet. It just meant that when they saw a preacher coming, it was beautiful to see because he was walking. And today you can say how beautiful are the automobiles of those that proclaim the good tidings of peace. So I just prayed for God to keep those who rode in the car safe or those in our family that drove safe. When my girls were teenagers, I had to pray that a lot. I had like a reserved parking place at the local body shop. Hey, so I encourage you, transfer ownership of everything you have to God. You can do that now. You can do that this afternoon if you want to have a special ceremony in your house. After all, folks, God owns it all. We don't own a thing. He just lets us manage them for a little while. So the first thing is Jesus takes what we give him. Step number two, Jesus blesses what he takes. Because the Bible says he looked up to heaven and he blessed the food. By the way, you are like Jesus whenever you pause before a meal and ask God to bless the food. You're being biblical, okay? And so this means you ought to be thankful for what God has given you. Do you spend more time asking God for more or do you spend more time thanking him for what he's given you? Now, you know, there, there's a principle in the Bible that when you surrender ownership of everything to God, that he often gives it back to you, but now his power infuses it. A great example of that is in the Old Testament with Moses. Uh, you remember Moses saw the Lord at the burning bush, and he said, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I can't talk. I'm, I stutter. Hey, I'll put the words in your mouth. I just don't have enough strength. I'll go before you. So God made all these promises to Moses, and then when you get to Exodus 4, it's like God said, well, I mean, Moses said, I'm still not sure, God, that you're good for your word. Can you do something to kind of prove you have some power? So God said, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses said, well, it's my shepherd's staff. God said, throw it down before me. I mean, I don't know. Moses might have thought, it's my staff. It's a perfectly good staff. Why do I want to throw it down? Throw it down, Moses. So he threw it down, and it became a snake. And Moses did what I would have done. He turned and ran from the snake. 80 years old, white beard, white robes flowing in the breeze as he's running away. God said, Moses, go back and pick it up. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like being around snakes. The only kind I like is a dead snake. But finally, Moses probably went over there and grabbed it by the tail and turned back into the staff. But then the Bible says later in that chapter, as he's getting ready to go to Egypt, you know what the Bible says? He took the Lord's staff. And when he needed to split seas 
and bring water gushing forth from a rock, he used God's staff. God gave it back to him, but it had God's power in it. It was blessed. And so as you surrender and transfer control everything to God, he'll give you your house back, he'll give you your car back, but it'll be infused now with his power. It'll be blessed. Step number three, Jesus breaks what he blesses, and this is the part that can be a little painful, because to the world and the world's economy, when something is broken, it becomes less valuable, and you have to fix it or throw away and get a new one. But in God's economy, he uses broken people and broken things. You see, the opposite of brokenness is, is arrogance and pride. And as I said, nobody is too young or really too old for God to use, but there are some people that are too big for God to use, too big in their own eyes. And so King David was that way after the episode with Goliath. He, toward the end of his life or toward the pinnacle of his life or whatever you want to call it, he didn't think he needed to go into battle, so he, he stayed behind. And as you know, he fell into the sins of adultery and even murder. And so he, he covered that up for a while. And then the prophet Nathan came to him. God sent Nathan to him and said, you're the man. And in Psalm 51, we see how David repented. And, and one of the things David prayed was in Psalm 51, 17. He said, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humble heart. Have you ever asked God to break you, to give you a spirit of brokenness? You know, when I first started writing brokenness in manuscripts years ago, spell check wouldn't recognize it. <laughs> There's like a, not an English word, brokenness. And that's how the world looks at it. You know, some traditions and habits are good and it just so happens that the little church I grew up in South Alabama, every Sunday morning as we were ending the service, we would always sing the same benediction. It was in the, it was in the Baptist hymnal, but it really was more like what we would call a chorus today. But we sang it every Sunday morning. That's the way we ended every service. It was called Spirit of the Living God by Daniel Iverson. Here are the words, Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. Here's the part I want you to notice. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. And many times in my quiet time, I still sing that as a prayer to God. Jesus takes what we give him. He blesses what he takes. He breaks what he blesses. And the final step is this. Jesus multiplies what he breaks. Because the Bible says he, he took that fish and that bread and he, he multiplied it until it fed 15,000 people. All they wanted, they were totally satisfied. He is the Savior of the surplus. He's the Lord of the leftovers. So I, in my sanctified imagination, I just imagine old Simon Peter there that day. The little kid brings up the five loaves and two fishes, and I can just hear Simon Peter saying, well, at least the staff will be fed. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, Peter, we're going to serve everybody else first. So Peter goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Each time he's looking, is there going to be anything left for us? We're hungry. We're doing all the work. 
And when he finally gets back and everybody's fed, it's all gone. Peter said, wow, wouldn't you know it? Then Jesus said, hey, go, you guys go pick up the leftovers. And let's see, uh, how many baskets did they pick up? How many disciples were there? A basket for each one. And I used to sort of picture fish skeletons, <laughs> crumbs of bread, but the actual word in Greek is a word we were used for portions, servings. You know what, when you, you go say, I'm going to have a second serve. So this, was, this wasn't a fish bone. This was, this was delicious, nutritious food because that's what Jesus does. Little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. There's a story about a famous violinist who was going to put on a concert in New York City using a priceless Stradivarius violin. The place was packed as everybody was anticipating hearing the sound from that priceless violin. The violinist comes out, plays a piece from Mozart, and it is beautiful. And everybody's looking at the violin, and they jump to their feet after the first song and, and just applaud. But then the violinist did something that shocked everybody. He took the violin by the neck and smashed it on the stage to everybody's horror. And then when they settled down, he said, I just want you to know the first song was not on the Stradivarius. It, it was on a $50 violin I bought at the pawn shop down the street. I just wanted you to understand it is not the instrument that makes the music. It's the instrument in the hand of the artist. And then he brought out the case and opened up the Stradivarius and began, continued the concert. But this time, the people's eyes were not on the violin. The people's eyes were on the artist. What's the lesson? What's the parable for us? Now, we're just a bunch of cheap fiddles. <laughs> All of us are just a measly meal. But in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of the Master, we can become something beautiful and become a blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord, you continue to bless us and just inspire us by what you did and what you said. So I pray that today we'll be able to apply these steps of surplus to our lives. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if anybody here in the room or watching on live stream, you don't know for certain that when you die you'll go to heaven, would you please allow me to lead you in a brief prayer of faith you can pray this prayer after me silently but sincerely. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I will never be good enough to earn heaven. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to die in my place. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the penalty for my sins on the cross. Right now, Jesus, I invite you into my life. Please take control of my life. I will live for you forever. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.